All right, welcome back to the podcast. And today I'm interviewing T- Pastor Tammy Herbert. She is up in Alberta, Canada. She, anyway, she's been pastoring for 20 years or so. You know, we all start out in ministry and we have these expectations and hopes and dreams of how ministry will be. And then, of course, then reality happens and we all have a different experience than what we anticipated. It's, it changes for all of us in some way, shape, or form. For her, uh, she adopted two children who both had needs. Uh, they are both neurodivergent in some way, and it has caused her to have to rethink the way that she pastors. And we talk about this a little bit in the episode, that now in this post-pandemic world, or as we're moving into that post-pandemic season, we're really not sure how much it is going to shift our culture, but we are anticipating that the shift is going to be to such a degree that maybe some of the ways that we think about pastoring and shepherding and discipling neurodivergent people is really going to move towards being the norm. We're all experiencing some form of collective trauma in a sense and the strategies that we would use to disciple neurodivergent people would be ways that might best help even our neurotypical congregants as well. So learning to think in new and innovative ways and really to educate ourselves on the neurodivergent mind. I'm going to put some books and and resources in the show notes. Uh, We mentioned Dan Siegel in the episode, also Maura Delahook. Uh, and so I'll have some resources in the show notes regarding those. This is really the last episode that I have in this series. I am looking to interview one more person. So if you know a clergy person who is dyslexic, I would love to interview them for the podcast, specifically for the Neurodivergent series. So send me a DM. Or if you are that person, send me a message. I would love to have you on the podcast to talk about that. Um, it's one one uh, of the neurodivergent uh, diagnoses that I haven't talked much about. Uh, my husband is dyslexic, and and I'm going to put a YouTube video in the in the resources also uh, in the show notes also as a resource because as I've been doing more research on it. Uh, dyslexia really presents in several different forms or six different forms of it. And even when we talk about, you know, people have maybe um, simplified it too much to, to really be uh, just reversing letters. And it is so much more than that. Uh, the people who are dyslexic, their mind actually thinks in 3D and which is, and so they struggle with one dimensional objects such as t- a one dimensional text on a page because a D could be a B or a Q or a P because uh, their mind actually sees it in 3D. But it's also what makes them uh, great at visualizing. Uh, they're really good um, artists, they're often good architects. A lot of them do really well working with their hands because of this ability to see things in in 3D. But it makes it difficult for them to process uh, more linear um, concepts or abstract concepts. But if they can visualize it, if they can put it into a picture, it makes it easier for them. Uh, So we do touch a little bit about dyslexia in this episode just because uh, I talk about my husband and how uh, he best 
engages God in uh, with all of his senses. Um, but I want to do, I'd love to do another episode that's more in-depth on that. Now, in the meantime, I am, I have several other episodes that I've already recorded. Daunting Grace is coming on the podcast soon, and we're going to talk about the Enneagram and their stories and how the Enneagram has helped them uh, to move to move into new places of discipleship and really to see uh, some wholeness uh, come into their lives. Uh, so watch for that episode. Dr. Olivia Metcalf is coming to the podcast as well. In the meantime, enjoy one of the last neurodivergent episodes. We've been trying to tell better stories about women and clergy and the church because we really need to tell better stories. Instead of just complaining about it, what if we flood the airwaves with something different? This is a series on uh, neurodivergent clergy, um, but we're going to be talking about it from different aspects. So, because you yourself are not neurodivergent, um, right? No. But I appreciate you coming on the podcast. My family is in Kansas and Missouri. Oh. I grew up in Kansas and went to the seminary is how I met my husband and he brought me up here. So he brought you up there to Alberta. To Alberta. We've been here. <laughs> uh, my ordination anniversary is in June for 20 years. So, yeah. so you have been in Canada for 20 years? I've been in Canada for 23 years. We moved wow. up here eight months after we were married left everything I knew except my husband and came up here and started our little adventure that my father-in-law was Canadian and he's since passed but yeah so he came over here he used to come over here I guess to visit one of his grandparents must have moved here because we're in Michigan but we're right there by the oh yeah right there the fridge. yeah so anyway and so then they, he ended up meeting his my mother-in-law and he moved over here so oh, very cool yeah very cool yeah, so. it's interesting how we, how God takes us to places we never imagined. That's for sure. <laughs> right. So you've been in ministry for 20 plus years. And so, and you're currently kind of in between assignments, but you, but you do have an assignment, right? Like, what are you doing district wise? Like, what's your assignment with that? I am not currently formally assigned to a church right now. My husband and I made the decision to um, seek work work outside the church for the moment and become bivocational is how we consider ourselves. So my main role on the district is um, really threefold. I do a lot of supply preaching. The second role, I support our children's ministry, district children's ministry director and things like communications and social media, as well as I do quite a bit of the research on um, you know, the products we present to our district families and things like that, the things that she gives she shares with the churches as possible resources. I do quite a bit of research on that. And I also serve on the board of ministry and am involved in mentoring the pastors that are candidates for ordination. And I love all of that. And then the third thing that I do is, is at least the last two to three years since we've been here, I've done it almost an online ministry. I guess you'd say I've had eight different women that I've been in communication with, whether it's via Zoom, Facebook Messenger, email, um, phone, FaceTime, whatever, that all of them are either parents of children 
who struggle in church environments, let's say, who I would say would be neurodivergent, or um, women who are would consider them that themselves, whether it be because of, of birth or trauma. Trauma will put you kind of on a spectrum in some ways too. And just learning, hoping God would use my experiences as a parent mostly to to kind of walk with these women who are seeking God, but don't really fit into a traditional church environment. And so we've been able to do some remarkable things. God, God is, has been in among it all and seeing these women grow and ask tough questions. And that teaches me more <laughs> everything, right. but those are kind of the things that I've been doing. And, and I have hopes for the future that especially the ministry that I have kind of thinking about church differently because I'm a parent to kids that, you know, don't fit, don't fit the typical, what would you, you would call the typical kid that thinking about church differently has been a big part of what I'm working on kind of behind the scenes and hoping that at some point, you know, the church will be ready to hear maybe some of the ways we need to adjust and accommodate and um, to include a little bit better. Yeah. I mean, we, we live in a world that is very much designed for neurotypicals and, Mm -hmm. and then, and even more so in the church. And so it becomes awkward for some people, unless, especially if you don't have the resources, Uh, it seems like you fall into two categories, at least from what I have seen, super small churches that typically will do a better way, a better job of ministering to people who are neurodivergent just because of the size, they're able to do that. And they tend to have that family feel. Um, Mm -hmm. And then larger churches who can actually dedicate resources to having a staff person who specifically like does that. It it brings awareness, all those kinds of things. Those are definitely two models that I've seen for sure. Yeah. But that is something that as we're growing post-COVID, wanting to be mindful of that we don't lose that. Right. Um, so that as we grow, we don't exactly. lose that ability to minister to people who are more neurodivergent. Would you be willing to talk about just your own, because your children are teens now, what was your own process of getting them diagnosed and then resources and those kind of things? We were privileged to um, adopt our kids. It kind of gave us a leg up, I would say, than, than a family who um, has biological children, because we went into the process of parenting, um, knowing that, that we wouldn't, you know, we don't know their genetic history. We didn't know even the history of everything that happened to them during the pregnancy and things like that. So I did a lot of research trying partly to make good decisions for our kids that would be in our family. At the time, we were in a small town of about 5,000, about two hours away from a big city where we could get the medical care that we needed. So we had to be careful to make sure we could provide what they needed. So it was a lot of research ahead of time. And then getting to know the families of children, the, the mothers, especially of our children before they were born, we kind of had a clue based on their family situation, their, the struggles, the trauma they'd been through, um, everything that was a part of the situation that we needed to have our eyes wide open. 
Mm -hmm. And especially after our daughter came and there was um, some information given to us after birth that we didn't really know about. And it kind of changed our perspective where we had to say, okay, we need to look at this differently. We were shocked to see the one thing that we were really worried about was probably what was going to be a part of our family. But our, our oldest child, she didn't seem to have much. She would seemed very typical. And so we thought, oh, good, you know. We don't have to worry about that, but our second child we knew would probably have some stuff. And I will just say we were open to it because we didn't want to parent children that belong to other people. Basically, that's what adoption is, if that parent truly could parent. So we were more open to special needs where there was just situations that weren't viable for the parent. We had our eyes open, but it was still a shock when, um, I guess, our second child, especially, he he struggled from the very beginning. All sorts of, I mean, 48 hours old and just in stress, lots of stress, lots of um, very sick. And so it was just a process from that, basically that moment on to continue to seek the care. And by age three which was very early, they're on a, they're not on the autism spectrum, they're on the FASD spectrum. How are those, can you just talk about how are those different? They're in some ways, they're not really different. Okay. Like they present very much the same. And I tell a lot of people that because FASD is actually quite prevalent compared to autism, but it's a lot less known, mostly because of the stigma, the unnecessary stigma that's attached to it, because there has been a misunderstanding that it has everything to do with the mom's behavior during pregnancy, as opposed to autism, which no one really knows the reason behind it. But I mean, that's part of my advocacy in being willing to say, you don't know, like alcohol is involved in the prenatal period in a pregnancy. But just because alcohol is involved doesn't mean that they did something wrong, you know, but a lot of people say it's, it's for people who are, you know, that only happens to families who are marginalized or whatever, but it actually happens to upper middle-class families as well, because you just don't know the timing of things. And I mean, God made pregnancy and conception and pregnancy, this huge complex thing. And so you just don't know. So I've been very verbal about speaking of it in order to to take away some of that stigma, especially because I'm very defensive of their other moms, because they're beautiful, courageous people that I love very much. And my children are amazing, creative, resilient people as well. And so this diagnosis is only a part of, of what informs who they are. Having that um, in front of us, we really had to seek wasn't as obvious, I guess. There's, it's a lot harder process to get diagnosed because they have to have all sorts of information that may be unavailable to us. We are very fortunate at three years old when our son went to preschool, you really started to see some of the stuff that was happening and very fortunate that the city we lived in had a doctor, a pediatrician whose main focus was children with on the spec, different spectrums. And she immediately started making the appointments. And so not every family has that opportunity. And so we acknowledge that we were 
blessed, I don't believe in luck, but we were blessed to kind of have this process happen the way it did. It was a hard work too, because we had to have those contacts as well. And so he was diagnosed very early on, which is very unusual. He was diagnosed in kindergarten. And that's been huge for us to be able to do the work and to really see him for who he is, as opposed to some of the ways when we struggle with a child who thinks differently, who processes differently, who responds differently, and who can be challenged, feel like they're giving you a hard time. We were able to start doing the work of kind of changing our lens on how we thought about was and being able to advocate for him as a as parents in his school system, in the church, and in, in the community as well. Our first child, we don't really have any diagnoses, but that was something I thought might be able to mention if we're talking about at some point about neurodivergent clergy, that sometimes it's not as important to have a diagnosis as it is to have an understanding of who you are. That's part of the process with you don't always need it. You just need to be able to see the person as the unique person made in the image of God that they are and not say you have to fit into this specific category because we're right. learning that we all don't fit in. You know, we're all unique. That's been a big part of it is just changing that lens and being able to see my kids differently. The diagnosis has helped with supports, but what's helped the most is just being able to say, this is why he thinks differently which also makes him brilliant in many different areas as well. As well. Yeah, I think the, the diagnosis has, help, has helped me and I definitely wish I had had it earlier only because mm-hmm. I didn't realize how many things I was, a lot of the things I was struggling with, I didn't realize were symptoms of the diagnosis. And so I kept trying to like ignore them rather than this is your brain works differently. This is why, and here is how you need to, restructure the way that you're doing ministry in order to be more effective, you know? Exactly. Uh, Well, I I think it's a huge mountain that can be flattened. I don't know how else to describe it that we see in front of us. If we start seeing ourselves, like acknowledging that, like, I think that diagnosis does help a person say, well, this is what's going on with me. So I can relax a little bit. Like I live with some chronic illness, which is part of me having to relearn how I pastor as how I parent and pastor as well. But it's the same idea where you have to acknowledge, okay, I get tired. Therefore, board meetings that last more than two hours aren't a good idea. Right. Just like with with children, you you have to structure like children's church or Sunday school classes. So many of the old ways that I was brought up just don't work nowadays. And I think a lot of churches get and leaders get frustrated because right. it feels like they're not getting anywhere. Mm-hmm. But I wonder this if the same could be said about adults as well, like misunderstand, just not knowing, not being aware and misunderstanding like a response that looks like it's um, defiance or something like that, as opposed to just plain exhaustion. Right. Which is what I mean about the changing of the lens. I can see my, give my kids a lot more grace and even myself to say we're in a different mode of life because of all these things that are a part of it. They don't always like me talking about it, but they also acknowledge that there are other people that can benefit from the things we've learned as well. 
Yeah. For a lot of years from in ministry, I've just said, you just need to push through it because normal people can do a three-day district assembly and then they're fine to go to work the next day. Right. And so then I would be like, just push through it because, you know, the alternative is you're not normal, which is true. I'm, I have a neurodivergent brain, not a neurotypical yeah. brain. Yeah. yeah. I always say that everyone's got stuff. That's one of the things I say to a lot of people who want to hide kind of the stuff they're carrying. It really does us no good to place judgment on things like why is she taking a nap during the afternoon session? <laughs> you know, to question someone's integrity because they need rest. Right. I mean, those are some of the things that have happened to leaders in the church. You can you can show how many hours you've worked every week it's above what you said you committed to but yet for some reason because you took a break on this certain afternoon and they saw you eating lunch by you know with your spouse that maybe you're not working enough or you actually you you actually stopped and ate lunch you didn't work through your lunch we have made busyness godliness and so people who actually are obedient in resting and keeping the sabbath in being mindful and you know reflective and meditative mm-hmm. we are the we are now considered lazy the people who are actually breaking the sabbath who refuse to, to rest who refuse to be <laughs> walking obedience with god they're, they're all of a sudden considered getting, and um, you know it does make you wonder about the level of burnout compassion fatigue you know that compassion fatigue that is in our churches i think it has really come to a head during this time of of COVID with the extra stress of trying to figure new things of even the normal pastor being thrown out of their routine, that even the ones that appear normal, and I'm using people, I'm using air quotes on that because who's normal? Like really, Um, they're they're showing their weariness, the people that have always been able to present the church face. And that's one of the glorious things I've learned from my children and others is that they don't have the ability to keep that church face on, like to say, I'm good. I'm great. I'm just going to present this and I'll deal with the rest. And then you end up burned out. They'll show you their needs. They communicate through their behaviors. I think we all do. And I think that's a huge thing we can learn from the neurodivergent community is that we all have limits. And we all have to find ways to care for ourselves. And for for a lot of people that we can't even see it because it's invisible. You know, it's not something that you wear on your face, that people are being judged because they behave certain ways. They are like, maybe they only make it to two services a month because it's such an overwhelming experience to them that they can't face it every Sunday. I know that's part of what has happened with us is that the large group setting, we weren't able to worship because we had so much stress in that. And I think your the things you were saying about the kind of the two models of church, the small church versus the larger church that can, you know, they're both good ideas, mm-hmm. but the idea of having a small church where you're understood and known and feel safe is more important than any we should be doing that for everyone, whether or not you have a diagnosis of some sort. Part of what has to happen is there has to be a change of mindset that says we have to go to church 
and pretend we're not carrying a huge backpack full of stuff with us. We have to stop pretending at some point and say, this is where we all are and be human with each other. I felt deep, feel deeply convicted that, you know, for some of the ways that I have like taught discipleship classes and had the expectation that people will, you know, kind of like, okay, you're done with grade one. Now we're moving to grade two. It mm-hmm. doesn't all, it doesn't work that way. Like we try to, okay, we're done with this chapter. We're moving to the next chapter, but not everybody's mind works that way. Those are the, all the lessons I've learned from these incredible people that I live with. I think they can translate very well into how we do church. Right. You know, I feel like screaming sometimes at church too. It's not just the little <laughs> kid who can't stay in control. <laughs> I definitely feel like screaming quick story in seminary I lived with a family whose our middle son was down syndrome he and I were the best buddies and one time at church I was in the bathroom with his mom and he was he was just standing there waiting for us and my head hurts my head hurts and his mom says where does your head hurt at church (laughs) it's one of my favorite stories to tell because church can be a tough environment for people who are sensitive to input. You know, I always describe my kids as turtles without a shell because they Mm -hmm. don't have the same armor on them, protects them from bright lights and loud noises. And, and even the stimulation of having all these people talking to you and not having the wherewithal to, you know, they feel like they're surviving. They're not thriving in that environment. And so I wonder if we're, what we can learn from understanding how people's brains really work and understanding what they bring with them. I, I like your description of without a turtle without a shell. Cause I just say that, that like my five senses are just the volume is turned up really mm-hmm. high. On That's an excellent way to describe it. You know, it's kind of a bittersweet, how we do church today. If you're, especially if you're Protestant and more specifically evangelical, I could never do a, a church for me that where you worship in the dark and they got the stage lights and the fog and all that kind of stuff. For me, I'm not going to experience God, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, in that kind of a presence. So I do think that there's an awareness of, I don't want to say that there's not a place for those kind of churches as much as we need to recognize you're not going to reach certain people if that's what you're using. And if that is also the only thing we determine as success in the church. Exactly. Um, then we have a problem, right? Because the exactly. smaller church that's reaching those people that you that you will never reach because of their neurodivergence, maybe just as successful, if not more so. Even down to basic counting. I was SDMI president or chair for a while, and that area you're in charge of, like collecting people's numbers. And over and again, I all I could think of is there's a lot more going on in some of these places than what these reflect, because there are people who are being Some people's church is a small group for the very reasons that you're saying, and they need to have permission to have a small group that isn't like a worship service. Right. And to feel like this is my worship. The lessons from these last two years with being able to have hybrid services is that you are able to help the people in some ways. Like I can go to church and it was either not go to church or go to church and be stressed because we we were expected to be calm. I shouldn't make it sound like the church wasn't accepting of us. They were. Part of it was my own stress right. of knowing 
or they weren't feeling good there. And so I don't want to make it sound like the church wasn't accepting because that wasn't true. This way, my child can lay on the floor if they want to and listen or build their block, you know, and churches need to learn that that's one way of doing hybrid. Another way of doing hybrid is to actually bring that into the sanctuary. And so how are we as pastors helping families who and people who are experiencing this? You know, and you've talked a little bit about this already. How would you say it affected your ministry, but also your approach to ministry? It's profoundly affected how I see ministry. Like I really imagined when Dave and I are both ordained, my husband, we imagined ourselves at a smaller town congregation pastoring together. Our family would just fit in. They'd sit on the front pew, you know, we'd be able to just manage it all. And what we thought we wanted and what we got instead is very different. And the difference is how it's changed me and how I think about pastoring now. One is I say a lot of times is once you see certain things, you can never go back. And so like the compassion I had, the suffering with, the compassion I feel for people who live in the marginalized areas for whatever reason, whether it is because of a a brain difference or because of trauma or because of generational issues or whatever, I see that. I see them more because of what we've experienced. And that has helped me be able to, it's made me be able to see my role differently as a pastor, as not just keeping people together. Like I've got to keep my church together as opposed to how do we need to change and move and accommodate in order to help every person in some way feel included. You can't accommodate everything for everybody, but what can we do to make people feel more comfortable and included? And some of the things are very simple and small, and some of it has to just do with opening your eyes and being more aware. And so just being able to see our world collided with a different world and being able to see that bigger world has changed, like even what I want to do with ministry. I'm not no longer satisfied with kind of the, I guess, the formal, typical experience of having a church. And I want it to be bigger than that. You know, I want that to be kind of the the home base for what we do in other places, rather than just try to keep this church going. Another thing it did for me is it gave me permission to pastor differently because I had knowledge, like as a children's, my main focus in the last two places I pastored were children because of my experience and the learning it really brought out some of the instincts I guess I had for leading a ministry and training leaders to work with our children you know talking about with the leaders about well no it you don't need to make him sit still you need to give him boundaries so he has room to move and listen to his own body while he's listening to you. No, just because he doesn't have his eyes on me who's speaking doesn't mean he's not hearing you. You can color. Some kids can color and listen and hear even better. You know, understanding some of that changes the environment of what we expect of our children and gives us realistic expectations. So kids don't have to be little adults in church children's ministry space where we darkened the lights, like they were all fluorescent lights. So we put coverings over them, brought in softer light, like lamps and stuff, lamps and twinkle lights and stuff like that. 
and kept it a little bit of a darker space as a way to calm kids. Sometimes did, but we didn't do a lot of like hyper games. A lot of children's ministries about getting the kids all hyped up and excited. But when you have a group of kids, and my last ministry especially was a group of kids that came from almost every single one of them had a story of, you know, there was lots of foster families, adoptive families, single parent families. So there was stuff there that these kids were bringing and they needed a calm space to feel safe. And so it changed how I even trained and helped prepare lay leaders in teaching them not how to teach a Sunday school lesson as much as how to relate to a kid. Mr. Joe's going to sit down beside me while I'm a little wiggly, but it's okay. You know, he likes me anyway, and he came to my ball game. So he's cool, you know, teaching our leaders how to do that a little bit differently. So I, it felt like it gave me permission to explore some of these things that I was experiencing as a parent in the larger environment of the church. And that translates so well to adults. We focus on the kids and we often forget there are a lot of adults with um, different needs. Third one I wrote down is that I've had to get creative in how I pastor. I'm, I'm nowhere near where I thought I would be 20 years into ministry. Right? <laughs> you know, but how you thought things would happen, it's not at all there. So there's a grief in that as well. And to acknowledge if you're a pastor and things aren't what you thought they would be, you know, to also be willing to grieve your hope and dreams, hopes and dreams for how you thought things would be and say, okay, now I can accept, I can also accept how things are. It's not going to be what I thought it was going to be, but it can be amazing anyway. Yeah. And I like what you said about the approach to discipleship is going to be different. My husband would definitely applaud you saying about creativity. So he's neurodivergent also, but he's dyslexic. Your typical Bible study, right? Which is read these verses, answer these questions, and then we're going to gather together and we're going to discuss our answers. He's like, yeah, that ain't happening. It's not energized. It's hard enough for him to read scripture just to the extent of spending his daily time with God. Now you want him to study it. And so even, even in his daily time with God is looks very different. So he has the incense going. He really likes Native American flute music. So he'll have that playing while he's reading some scripture and then he's praying. He's usually walking and moving while he's praying and talking to God and having this conversation. So he has all of his senses involved in order to really have this, you know, experience, you know, God's presence. You know, he has led a lot of small groups over the years and almost all of them have had some kind of component like that. So he had a, he had a workout Bible study where they met in our basement and the men would work out That's fantastic. Yeah, for 30 minutes, they'd lift weights and I think they did sparring too, you know, I tried not to pay attention, you know, and then they would get, and then they would read a scripture and then they would talk about it. Like, how's God talking to us? So they did a much more Lectio Divino Divino Mm -hmm. style uh, study. And so a lot of the small groups he's been involved in have been more along those lines. Um, Conversations with, with other, with people who are more knowledgeable than I am about this and the whole idea of it could be a whole nother conversation about how how have we been detrimental in people's spiritual walks by having the expectation that these are the spiritual practices that show that you're growing and these aren't. The whole idea of sparring before you read scripture fits so well with someone who needs to regulate their emotions in order to, I mean, I'm going to get into a little neuroscience here, but- oh, that's good. 
we automatically go to our reactions, which is in our limbic, you know, system. If you cannot, if you're not regulated, you don't go into the thinking system where you can actually think through things. And it's the thing I think often about people around me is, okay, don't try to push any further because they're reacting. They're not thinking. And so what he's literally doing with this group is getting them in a place where they can think. When I was leading children's worship, we would, when we got into the room, it was not necessarily music, but there was action and there was stuff to get the wiggles because they'd been in big church for a while. And then each of them got a chance to talk. So they were, not only did I help them regulate, but then they got to see that they were seen. Mm-hmm. And those are the two big things that help people I, that I've seen just from my little experiment there settle down to be, okay, now I've, I've seen you, now you can hear me. And there's that communication then where the kid is saying, okay, this may not be completely comfortable for me to hear you talk a little bit. It's not my favorite thing, but I'm willing to do it because you saw me. And that's what your husband is doing in a fantastic way is he's seeing these people and their real need mm-hmm. and meeting that need in order to share something that will meet an even greater need. That's the creativity that we need in the church that we're missing, not in every place, but in a lot of places, that willingness to say, this is not going to look like my Bible study looks more like playtime you know, with my friends, <laughs> coffee and chatting. And every once in a while, we bring it back to, to something, but we practice fellowship, we practice play, we practice laughing, right? All those are spiritual practices as well that can lead us to God, just as much as sitting in a quiet space that some people are very, that is just the way they hear God. Other people right. don't. And to acknowledge that we, we're we all different that way. Yeah. I think that the shame and guilt that sometimes comes with not being able to read a certain amount, read through your Bible in one year or right. pray every day, or, you know, even, you know, oh, I journal every day, which is lovely. I'm glad you do that. <laughs> it doesn't happen for me. I journal in yep. my brain. I wish I could get it out on paper sometimes because I'd love to share some of it, but, but I have other things I have, you know, other ways of, you know, music is a big part of it for me, just turning on the music while I'm doing what I'm doing. And it's just something that speaks to me very much that other people are like, nope, got to have it quiet. That's my husband has to have it completely quiet. Yeah. And we're going to learn together, but we're going to learn in our own ways too. And it's okay. Yeah. You talked about that idea of self-regulating and it also makes sense of when we had come back from the pandemic before the vaccines and masks and stuff like that. So because of our sanctuary small, we weren't singing. So pre-COVID, right, we would always sing some song or whatever, we have the offering and we'd sing a congregational song right before I get up to preach, right? So after I came back, I'm like, I could not figure out why preaching was so hard to do. Mm-hmm. And even still, since we've gone back to music, a lot of times we don't have that song right before I get up to preach. And so like, it's just you saying that I'm like, this makes so much more sense. Not having that song to kind of self-regulate a little bit and so move me into that, uh, that higher, you know, that higher thinking in order to get up there and preach, you know, plays a, a huge role. So, yeah. And to give yourself some space, like during a song, you can take a breath, say now we, you know, cause when you're leading a service, sometimes it's, you're up, you know, yeah. your adrenaline's going and it gives you time to focus. 
Yeah. This, I mean, not, just thinking back the, the weeks that we have a song now, right before I'm going to preach, uh, I get up and right out of the pulpit, I feel like I'm like, it's flowing. One of the things the church does well is the order of worship, mm-hmm. because for people who are, who think differently, neurodivergent, having a sense of order to things. Yeah. Help you. Cause then you can say, okay, now I can breathe. Like you would say, I can breathe for a minute here and focus on on what I'm going to say and then you're ready to go oh yeah and they need they need to know what's next like that was that's always been a big deal we we talk a lot about what's happening today Mm -hmm. and planning ahead and try to keep the surprises out and that worked very well in children's church or um, youth group right and that's a subtle way that we can regulate ourselves and help the whole group regulate together. <laughs> yeah. And that's why the you know special days are so awkward, not just for mm-hmm. me, but for even children who are more neuro, who are neurodivergent as well. Like Easter is supposed to be so awesome. And it is so hard for me because even the order of service and the things that we do, we have some special things that we always do on Easter, which at least it's, at least it's typical for the year before that. But I haven't done it for 364 days. You know what I mean? It's been been a few minutes since we did Easter last, you know? The worst days at school were the fun days like field trips and stuff like that. And we have to say, see that in our different areas of our life as well is even good things can be tough. Okay. I want to kind of close with this. What are the kinds of resources people might look for neurotypical pastors who are Mm -hmm. ministering to neurodivergent people? What are some of the resources that they want to look for in order to help educate themselves? Well, one would be the actual person going directly to someone. Like a couple of the women I know are just dying to have someone ask them what would help. Have been deeply, feel deeply wounded by the church because they felt like they were expected to be in a certain, fit in a certain way. And were, and they see people not accepting them for all of who they are as a rejection by the whole church, you know, so it's, it was a wounding. And so part of it is if someone's struggling or say, say what, what's going on here and try to get, you know, that whole being seen, getting out, being known and finding that safe relationship is so important. So if a, if a pastor's even questioning that they need to ask, they need to say, okay, this is an area that we want to work on. Is there anybody who is an expert on it just you know and by using the word expert means you know yourself well enough to know that this is a part of your own life or you're a parent who's advocating for their kid already who could help you understand that so going directly to people you know another one is I would recommend for every pastor something that's completely changed my way of thinking is I kind of went into the neuroscience of it but understanding how the brain works. Like I'm, I'm hopefully going to be able to do this for our district here in the near future, but being willing to say as pastors, we think on such an, sometimes it's more of an, the art side of our brain because it's about writing and speaking and creativity and stuff like that. But we're forgetting that science plays a part in how people receive what we're trying to give them. Right. And it has to do with how people think, like how fast people process. And so understanding how the brain works and understanding how 
everyone's brain in some ways is very similar, but there's people whose brains are wired to process more slowly. And so they stay in a state where they're not under, they seem like they didn't ever understand it or get it or who process too quickly. And so they don't grasp everything, you know, and to just be willing to slow down a little bit, do you reading some stuff like by Dan Siegel, who is one of the neuroscientists that I've really gained a lot from um, another one, she focuses mostly on parenting. The pastor church relationship is, is kind of like that is Mona Delahook is her name. She's someone I'm really been listening a lot to, but she does a lot on the brain body connection and how we react and see things differently based on what we know. And so people like that can kind of give you insight, like how somebody else might be thinking and the little changes you can make because sometimes it's not a huge thing you have to do to make things better. Sometimes it just takes slowing down. And instead of thinking, I have to get this discipleship material done in the next six months in order to meet my goal, it's going to take a year to unpack stuff they're carrying with them in order for them to even hear me. Understanding the, the neuroscience as well as just being willing to talk to someone, to understand the uniqueness of each person. We talk about it, but right. do we, when we prepare to speak, to teach, to disciple, even to worship, do we take into context, into consideration the diversity of the people in front of us? Yeah. This is just good stuff. And I just really appreciate you coming on here and uh, sharing just your experience from your family, but then even those you're, you're ministering to who find themselves in this place. Uh, and I mean, now more than ever, it's really needed fumbling as the church is fumbling and trying to find footing again. I think it's going to be important for us to tackle some of these things. It is. And, and we really are given a moment right now because so many people are trying to figure out or are figuring out we're not going back to normal think people have changed yeah and what a great opportunity all of us on some level have experienced a kind of a collective trauma yeah what a moment we have trying to regather people and trying to re- move forward and find a new way to say how do we think about things differently